Hello and welcome back to the Be Well Together podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Bowen, and I'm the Director of Employee Engagement Programs at Salesforce. In this weekly series, we bring in luminary speakers and well-being experts to provide insights and tips related to all aspects of mental, physical, and social well-being to help you thrive at work and at home. Equality and well-being go hand in hand. In this episode, we're discussing mental health, specifically in the Black community. As our guest, best-selling author, and the founder and CEO of the Winters Group, Mary Frances Winters explains, inequality can take a toll on our bodies and minds. So what can we do about it? Together, we can help create a better, more equal world. And it starts by being an ally at work and in our lives. In today's important discussion, Lola Banjo, Senior Director, Innovation Consultant, and President of Bold Force, Salesforce's Black Employee Resource Group, speaks with Mary Frances about her most recent book, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, the importance of addressing microaggressions, and how supporting mental health in the Black community can help heal society as a whole. It's time to feel empowered and inspired with Mary Frances Winters. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Be Well Together. In for Jody today, I'm Lola Banjo, Senior Director, Innovation Consultant, and President of Bold Force, our Black ERG at Salesforce. We are approaching the one-year anniversary of the death of Mr. George Floyd, and to honor his life and to continue the important discussions about mental well-being, this Mental Health Awareness Month, we have a very special guest here today who can speak to some of the feelings and emotions that we're experiencing. It is my greatest pleasure and honor to introduce thought leader, Mary Frances Winters. Mary Frances is the founder and CEO of the Winters Group, a diversity and inclusion consultant firm that works to drive organizational change. Uh, She has been hailed as a diversity pioneer. She has authored six thought-provoking books, including her most recent, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, which highlights the impact on health, not only within the Black community, but on society as a whole. Today, Mary Frances is going to share her insights on Black fatigue and give us some of the ways to approach mental health in the Black community. Thank you so much, Mary Frances, for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Lola. Thank you all for inviting me to present today for your Be Well Together series. It's truly an honor to share with Salesforce employees, customers, and families. We've all gone through a lot this last year, and I do hope that you and your families are holding up well. So I've been asked to share a little bit about how racism impacts um, mental and the physical health of um, African-Americans and Blacks in particular. So I wrote this book called Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit last year in response to the many Black employees in corporate spaces, mostly millennials and Gen Zs, who had actually shared with me their exhaustion in trying to succeed in the corporate world. So I'm a baby boomer. I've been out here for 37 years doing this work. So I would say to them, you're 30 years old. How are you exhausted already? And give me that side eye like, um, I know that I am exhausted. And so it got me to thinking, you know, from company to company, industry to industry, the story was the same. Black employees told me of the daily inequities from the small, often unintentional implicit biases that play out as microaggressions to blatant racist behavior, such as being the target of racial slurs as egregious as, you know, using the, the N-word. But many um, said that, you know, they remain silent, you know, fear of being labeled as overly sensitive, being labeled as, you know, not a team player, and even fear of losing their jobs. 
So the emotional toll is overwhelming and greatly impacting physical and mental health. I actually conceived and wrote Black Fatigue before the current focus on anti-Black racism and anti-Asian racism ignited, the anti-Black racism ignited by the killings of George Floyd, Amon Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so many others before and after George Floyd. And obviously more recently, uh, the violent attacks on Asian and Pacific Islanders. And so this is something that has been going on, you know, even before all of this has been in the spotlight. But as a result of this renewed interest um, by organizations in every conceivable industry in listening to the lived experiences of Black people, Black employees have been given permission to take off that proverbial muscle and share their stories without the concerns that they may have had before about retribution, because leaders are really saying, you know, we really want to hear and claiming that they didn't know that the injustices were still so, so great. So I've, I myself was like shocked that so many claim um, what I call in the book um, sublime ignorance, um, that they just didn't know that you know racism was still so uh, rampant. As a matter of fact, um, I was doing a, a keynote for a town hall at a major financial um, services uh, organization and the CEO kicked it off and he said, you know, my CFO is a black male. And he said, he's been with um, this company for 20 years and I never knew that he walked um, uh, the world as a black man uh, differently than I did. He said, I thought because he was, you know, in this high level position, you know, that he didn't, uh, he didn't have that. And Lola, I'm, I'm not sure if, if that resonates for you uh, in terms of, you know, um, people not really knowing or saying that they didn't know about, you know, uh, that racism was so still such an issue in society. I don't know if you've had that experience. Of course. Yeah, we hear that all the time, especially, you know, in these corporate spaces, you know, people inferring, like you just mentioned, that um, because you're you're in a different situation socioeconomically, that you may not be impacted by this. But that's absolutely, as you, of course, observed, that's not true. Right, exactly. We're going to see that with the health as well. So, yeah. So for 37 years, like I said, I've been doing this and I've been telling leader after leader in learning session after learning session, you know, about the inequities that marginalized groups face. And so for me, it was kind of like when, when people are saying we didn't know, I'm like, what have I been saying all this time? What have my fellow practitioners, uh, you know, been saying? And it's a shame that it took, you know, something like the murder of George Floyd for this sort of resurgence of interest in really trying to understand and combat racism. We've conducted thousands of focus groups where black and brown employees report, over the years, report more toxic environments than white employees. In addition, often the results of our cultural audits where we go in depth with quantitative data, we show statistically significant disproportionate outcomes for black and brown people in hiring and promotions, involuntary and voluntary terminations, performance reviews. So, you know, this should not have been new news, but anyway, we are now seeing, you know, much more of a focus. So in all of the different industries that, that, we, um, that we work in, I've heard, you know, the same emphatic messages from black and brown people of feeling undervalued, disrespected, and very much like an outsider. So here's a sampling of some of the things that I have heard just over the past year or so. I am invisible here. I feel like people avoid me because they don't know what to say to the only black person in the department. The microaggressions are constant. From leaving me off meeting invites that I should have been a part of, to talking down to me as if I'm stupid. It just never stops. I'm always on guard. I don't feel that I can trust my coworkers with my authentic truths. 
And I feel like they somehow see me as a threat. When I did say something about somebody um, calling me by a nickname that I did not give them permission to use, I was accused of being too sensitive. So I just grin and bear it now because I do need this job. Another comment, there's no such thing as being casual if you're black, being considered in any way non-professional. I don't dress or talk or look in any way that might give them a reason to see me as anything but what they consider professional. It is exhausting. As a black woman, I carry the stigma of angry all the time. So I feel like I need to be extra nice so as not to get that label. It's really not authentic though. A black man who behaves in the same way will be seen differently. An aggressive white man is labeled as a go-getter, but a black man will be seen as threatening and advised to tone down. White fragility? <laughs> what about black fragility? I feel like we are the ones who need extra care and consideration. Like somebody needs to pay attention to our vulnerability. Unconscious bias training is a joke. It does not change anything. What about talking about conscious biases? Discussions about race, are you kidding me? Until the George Floyd incident, nobody would talk about race. If you brought it up, there were palpable awkwardness and very quickly the subject would be changed. I look around and I don't see anybody who looks like me in the top leadership positions. I've worked really hard, get excellent reviews and continue to be given one excuse after another as to why I was not promoted. Things like, it takes a while at this company or there are so few positions at the top. These excuses, um, when you see people who have not been here as long as I have, and then you see top spots open with retirements. All of this rhetoric about bringing your whole self to work, inclusive culture, creating a sense of belonging, I can tell you as a black person, I would not think of bringing my whole self to work. I don't even know if they would want me to. As far as a sense of belonging, not even close. I definitely feel like an outsider and sometimes an outcast. These are often like people from like different companies. But as we were preparing reports for clients, I could have like just put a, the name of another company on the same report because the sentiments from company to company were exactly the same. We were getting the same feedback. So why did I tell you all of this? Because these experiences are trauma-inducing and impact Black employees' ability to do their best work. Constantly being on guard and questioning yourself about how to respond to inequities is fatiguing. And more importantly, the topic for today, it takes a toll on one's health and well-being. So let me just give you a few statistics about health. Black people are 44% more likely to die from stroke. Black people are 20% more likely to have asthma and three times more likely than white people to die from it. Black people are 25% more likely to die from heart disease. Black women are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer. Black women are 52% more likely to die from cervical cancer and 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women, even though the incident rate of breast cancer is comparable for the two groups. Listen to this one. Black women are 243% more likely than white women to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. And listen to this. College-educated Black women are no less likely 
they actually have worse outcomes than white women who have not finished high school. Black men are 30% more likely and black women 60% more likely to be diagnosed with high blood pressure. Black men are 1.3 times more likely to be diagnosed with colon cancer and 20% more likely to die from it. I lost my partner last year from colon cancer. Black people are 20% more likely to report psychological distress. Black infants are 3.5 times more likely to die at birth due to low birth weight. Black infants are 2.2 times higher infant mortality rates regardless of socioeconomic level of their mother. Black children are twice as likely to die from sudden infant death syndrome. Black children are twice as likely to have asthma. Black and brown people are disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus with two to three times um, the number of deaths. COVID-19 will reduce the U.S. life expectancy in 2020 by 1.13 years. Estimated reductions for the Black and Latino populations are three to four times that for whites. Even before COVID, educated Black people are sicker and die younger than their educated white peers. A Black person will live on average about three years, fewer, fewer three, three years fewer, I'm sorry, than a white person with the same income. And these disparate um, health outcomes are now being linked to racism, not some biological, social, or lifestyle explanation. There's a lot of research to back up the health disadvantages related to the harmful effects of chronic race-based discrimination, both real and perceived. These stressful experiences are thought to set in motion a process of physiological responses, elevated blood pressure and heart rate, that eventually result in disease and mortality. For example, researchers found that factors that predispose individuals to negative mental health outcomes include unfair treatment and social disadvantage, as well as other social stressors, such as inadequate levels of social support and the occurrence of everyday life events, such as repeated images of people who, who look like you being killed because of their race. It takes a mental toll. As a matter of fact, race-based trauma has been likened to post-traumatic stress syndrome, the same kinds of responses that individuals have who have, you know, who suffer from PTSD, the same kinds of responses happen with race-based trauma as well. And so other studies examine the possible consequences of perceived discrimination. So if you perceive it or you anticipate it. And they found that just the anticipation of being treated badly or unfairly had a powerful impact on individuals' mental and physical state. Medical experts report that being socially rejected, experiencing stereotypes and discrimination trigger the same neural circuits that process physical injury and translate it into the experience that we call pain. These are fairly new studies. As a matter of fact, Auburn University released a study in February 2020 that concluded African-Americans who reported more experiences with discrimination aged faster. It's called the weathering effect, adding to the evidence that racism is not only a social and moral dilemma, but also a public health issue. In the past few years, more than 20 cities and counties and at least three states, including Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin, have declared racism 
a public health crisis. Another study, Georgia State, said that worrying about racism has a significant wear and tear by increasing one's allostatic load, the lifelong buildup of stress, which accelerates aging and puts African-Americans at a greater risk for chronic illness. This lifelong buildup of stress, what they say is that it gets into your cellular system. It is a physiological response and it gets passed down from generation to generation. When I started to um, put this together and I was looking at some of the other webinars, many of them you know, were very upbeat and very positive. And I said, oh, I'm gonna bring all of this, you know, all of this really heavy data, but I think that we really need to hear it, right? I think that we really need, that we really need to know about it because um, it, it's not something that is new. Um, this has been going on you know, since slavery actually, where you know, African-Americans and blacks were not um, even seen in certain hospitals or had to, uh, had to be seen in the basement. White nurses were not uh, allowed to um, treat black men. And I mean, so that it just goes on and on when you think about the history of this. And I think one of the things that is so important for us right now at this inflection point, because I think it is an inflection point where we can either stay where we are, regress, or really see progress in dealing with systemic racism. So I think we need to understand understand the, the, the history. Now, one of the one of the concerns about you know, so I gave you all of these stats and told you all, all what's happening is that black people oftentimes do not get the care, not only because they don't have access or can't afford, but there's a stigma, particularly around mental health, particularly for black men. So during slavery, if slaves ran away, they they were they had this uh, a term, they were mentally ill. They call, they call them, they were mentally ill. And so in the black community, if you say that somebody is mentally ill, that, that is a, a stigma, you know, this idea that we have to be strong. So what's happening um, to, to support some of that is this idea of called barbershop therapy because black men go to the barbershop and they tell all, right? They talk to the barber about all of the, you know, all of their, their stresses and issues. And so they're teaching um, barbershop uh, owners and, and barbers um, to uh, be able to um, counsel, um, you know, uh, black men who are coming uh, into the barbershop. Uh, that's one way to get around, around that uh, stigma. But the other thing is, is that oftentimes black people are afraid of healthcare professionals. You've probably heard, the listeners have probably heard that uh, black people are less likely to get the uh, COVID um, uh, vaccine. And one of the reasons for that um, is because of the experimentation that was done on black people throughout history. Uh, the Tuskegee experiment where black men were given syphilis to study it. Uh, James uh, Sims is known as the father of modern gynecology, but there was a statue in Central Park that they removed because um, he did all of these experiments in, 18, in the 1840s on black women without any anesthesia and just all these operations to try to figure out, you know, to try to, to do some research to further the understanding of, of gynecology. So they put a statue up uh, for him in Central Park, which has since been taken down. Henrietta Lacks, whose cancer cells um, were used for years to study uh, to study cancer, she had some particular uh, way of that her cells um, mutated, uh, which was very very um, unique. So black people, a lot of black people are really afraid of you know, people in healthcare because of what has happened uh, in history. So, and I, I know for myself and my own family, um, oftentimes we would, you know, do our own, you know, if somebody was sick, you know, oh, you don't need to go to a doctor, just take this and it'll, it'll make you, it'll make you better. And so I think that part of the education and part of the learning and part of that history needs to be told so that we have an understanding of, of why, because oftentimes people say, well, why would they have such an attitude or, 
you know, um, when you hear it in the news, when you hear sound bites and you hear so in social media, it makes it sound like as a group, you know, um, black people are um, less healthy because we don't eat well. Black people don't go to the doctor because we're, we're, we're ignorant. And it's not, um, you know, that at all. We have to look at intergenerationally um, what we've learned in terms of how primarily white spaces and white dominant spaces um, have treated black people. And as I said, it continues. So what can we do? What can we do about it? Number one, obviously, you know, raise awareness, talk about it. We don't talk about race or racism. We haven't talked about race or racism in the workplace. I wrote a book in 2017 called, We Can't Talk About That at Work, How to Talk About Race, Religion, Politics, and Other Polarizing Topics. And I argue that we've not talked about race for a variety of reasons. I think there's guilt, there's shame. We don't know what to say. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. I know that as a consultant, many times I've been admonished by a client not to make too much about race. Now, we don't want to talk too much about race, Mary Frances. Diversity is about more than, uh, than just race. And last year, I wrote another book called Inclusive Conversations, Fostering Equity, Empathy, and Belonging Across Difference, where I point out the need to face our fear and fragility around talking about this in order to correct this reluctance and discomfort, we need to learn how to talk about it by focusing on, you know, what am I feeling about this? What, what is my, what, what's, what emotion is coming up for me? If I'm feeling fragile, if I'm feeling defensive, you know, what about what is being said is making me uh, defensive? Why am I not able, you know, um, to listen to this? Do I really know enough? Do I really know enough about this topic? Am I being defensive based on just a little bit of information? We also need to learn the language. We don't like to talk about and use the term racism. We don't like to be called a, you know, a, a racist, right? And so if we think about it, uh, we live in a racial hierarchy where there's a group on top that's white. And then the closer you are to white, the lighter your skin, the closer you are to white, the more power you have. We have to get comfortable acknowledging these hard truths to be able to talk about it, to be able to change the, uh, the, the trajectory. We have to stop being colorblind. Um, in particular, this is for... Um, my, my white colleagues who are listening, white people need to acknowledge whiteness as a part of their identity. According to a Pew survey, 75% of black people, 59% of Latinos, and 56% of Asians say that their race is core to their identity. And guess what? Only 15% of white people say that their race is core to their identity. I hear so often, you know, it doesn't really matter. Race doesn't matter. Well, it may not matter, it doesn't matter to the dominant group because the dominant group um, holds the, the, the social advantage, holds the privilege. And it's not about being blamed. It's not about being shamed about being white. It's about recognizing that in a racialized society where there is a hierarchy, race matters. You didn't create it. I didn't create it. But we have to recognize that it is holding people back, that it is not allowing people to be healthy. Uh, when we uh, when we don't acknowledge um, what it means to be in a racialized society, and so we have to do that so that we can have these conversations, cross racial conversations, where white people are recognizing um, what their race um, means in our society. But we're seeing more interest. So you know, on a, on a positive note, uh, many of the books that were are have been written in the past couple of years are flying off the shelves. Uh, books about racism. And many, you know, white people are um, uh, buying these books. You know, most people will say, well, I'm not a racist. And that's okay. But what are you doing, right? So anti-racism means that you are um, being very proactive in your own personal life to demonstrate and to support 
uh, anti-racism causes. It doesn't mean that you're going to protest or march. It doesn't mean that at all. But it may mean like developing more relationships, cross-racial relationships, so that you do understand the experiences of those who are those who are different. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the other things we need to do is we, you know, manage our defensiveness and our fragility. You know, nobody wants to be blamed, but this is a, there's a collective responsibility here. We may not be responsible, but we all have the responsibility to correct the situation. We may not have caused the situation, but as a society, if we say, and liberty and justice for all, if we are trying to create a more perfect union, if we are trying to uh, create equity uh, for everyone, because that's what we ascribe um, and that's what we that's what we care about. That's what we value. Then we all have a responsibility. And one way that we can take that responsibility is listen to the data. Too many times um, I've submitted um, audit findings and recommendations only to learn that the report was essentially ignored. One recent audit engagement with a large manufacturing company led to several scheduled uh, meetings with the CEO to review findings being postponed, and ultimately they never happened. This was because of the gatekeepers, um, the legal, the HR folks questioned the validity of the findings, uh, requested um, that we reword or take out certain unflattering content. So if leadership isn't even aware of what's going on in the environment, then Black people's experience obviously you know, will not change. You know, learning the history of racism, making sure that we understand that the accounts um, that uh, are in the history of history books are incomplete. What you've learned in school is probably biased and maybe even downright accurate. So making sure that you're getting, you know, accurate information about uh, the history. Ibram X. Kendi, Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote uh, The Cast, White Fragility by um, Robin DiAngelo. And of course, hopefully my book, Black Fatigue, would be helpful as well. I think we have to understand the intergenerational impact of racism, you know, and don't dismiss that. You know, we said, well, that happened so long ago. Why, why are we going back there? Why are we talking about 400 years ago? Because 400 years of oppression continue to loom large and the impact, the mental and physical uh, health of Black people is still being compromised based on things that were that started, yes, 400 years ago where, this, where the plight is the same. One of the chapters in Black Fatigue is called Then Is Now. And what I do is I have a bunch of, of uh, situations, socioeconomic indicators and other indicators where we see that um, not a lot has changed in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years uh, in terms of some of the, uh, some of the statistics. For example, um, in uh, 2007, 43% of black people own their own home. In 2015, 43% of black people own their own home. In 19, um, in 19, um, in 10 years ago, I'm sorry, 10 years ago, the median uh, household income for um, black people was $40,000. Today, that's the median household income. It hasn't changed. And so then is now. And so that stress of trying to you know, make it out of poverty, trying to achieve, being in a workplace where you're not heard, you're not listened to, where you feel that you're tokenized, it takes its toll and it absolutely impacts um, our health. So we can acknowledge that, acknowledge the emotional toll of racism whether in the form of implicit bias, microaggressions, or overt racism. The impact is the same, and repeated experience leads not only to Black fatigue, but it also leads to psychological health, um, health issues. Whole listening sessions with Black, Indigenous people of color on a regular basis, not just when something happens, not just when something awful happens, but make sure that we're doing that listening on a regular basis, checking in with people to see how they're doing. We need to do that with everybody right now. Uh, but also uh, with uh, our Black employees, 
uh, one of the studies by Lean In, and you all um, had um, the CEO of Lean In on, showed that um, only one in three workers had asked their Black co-workers how they were doing, had, had checked in with them. So that's something that we can do. Believe what you hear from BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color employees. Don't rationalize or defend or sugarcoat the results or worse, dismiss the concerns altogether. Acknowledge that your lived experiences may be very, very different from someone else's lived experiences and that you may not be able to empathize. Continue to listen and learn until you really can empathize. You can't empathize if you don't know anything about the person or the group with whom you want to offer that empathy. You can sympathize, which often leads to pity and patronization. Empathy takes work. When you can empathize, you'll, you really will likely be able to take action. And do your own learning, not expecting Black or other Indigenous people of color to be your teacher because it can compound the emotional toll. Make it an invitation and not an expectation. One of the uh, people that um, uh, I was talking with, a white leader said, yep, he said, I asked my, uh, one of my Black employees to come into my office and two, for two hours and tell me about the Black experience. Well, maybe that was just more emotional toll for that employee. It wasn't an invitation, it was an expectation. If you're gonna be an ally, look at yourself as an inspiring ally, right? If you're gonna be an, a power broker, I talk about power brokers in the book. A power broker is somebody who's on the inside who has influence to change systems. Sometimes allies don't have that. Allies may not be in that power position, but know where your power is and what you can do to change. Allow black and other um, people of color to set boundaries for talking about racism because it can be re-traumatizing. Re so it's okay to set the boundary and say, gee, you know, I really don't wanna talk about this. Um, you know, right now, um, and be okay with that. Engage therapists who are trained in racial trauma. It is a particular discipline. And so if you have an EAP program, make sure that you have people who are trained in racial trauma. And understand that resilience does not tackle the root cause. When you're resilient, you're able to bounce back. You're bouncing back from that oppression. You're bouncing back from a system that doesn't change. So resilience only goes so far. So most of what I've talked about seems directed towards the dominant group, white people. And that was intentional. When my publisher asked me who the book was for, I said, well, white people, of course, black people already know that we're fatigued. However, what I found out Ola, is that um, a lot of black people are, are getting um, some good information from the book as well. They're saying it's very affirming for them because many did not connect their symptoms, their physical symptoms, to living in a, a racist world. And so it's been very helpful for them as well. Absolutely. So for BIPOC, Black Indigenous people of color who are listening, we have an acronym at the Winters Group that we use, and it's called AFFIRM. Affirm that you are worthy. Affirm that you are enough. The A stands for allow yourself time to grieve and process. Processing can be done alone or with others. You can laugh or cry, but know that these are difficult times, so allow yourself time to do that. Find your community and lean into your village. Who are those like-minded people who may feel similarly who can support you? That's the second F. The third F is focus. Focus on your sphere of influence. All of us wanna make a difference, but make a difference where you are. My mother used to say, brighten the corner where you are and take credit for small wins. The I in a firm is for identify self and communal practices that work for you. Self-care should be ongoing. You should be prioritized and commit to creating your own toolbox that works for you. The R in a firm stands for rejecting 
oppressive norms and systems that compromise who you are. Don't internalize some of the stereotypes and all of this that's going on and, and just reject those. That is, that is not me. I'm not going to embrace that. And lastly, the M in Infirm stands for meditate and practice mindfulness. Practice ongoing mindfulness and embrace um, pausing, leveraging apps that are out there to help you to do that. Yeah, how powerful and informative for everybody. You know, not you know, if you identify as BIPOC or not. So many, I learned so much from you today. So thank you for pouring into us. That was just absolutely powerful. Thank you. I have a few questions. So your book centers around all these things that have, have really impacted our mental wellness. And so, you know, the, the exhaustion and frustration felt by many Black people due to the racial stress, it's really deeply rooted in these systemic races, uh, ra- systemic racism. Um, so how do we address that systemic nature of the racial injustice that we're experiencing now? You know, it, it is really hard because systemic racism is like, think about a big old oak tree, right? And think about the systemic part being like under the ground, in the roots, right? It's in the roots. You can't see it oftentimes. Right. And so it's, it, it is really sometimes, you know, very, very uh, difficult to see. So in an organization, I, I call it reverse engineering, and I don't even know if I'm using the term right, but you've got to peel back. So, so let's say in an organization, you have a high, uh, a high turnover rate among your, your Black employees, right? When I go into organizations, uh, I will tell you, oftentimes they don't know why, but they'll say, well, I think it's because there's so few um, Black people in, in these professional roles, you know, they're being uh, whisked away by some other company, some other company is taking them. And when I ask them for their exit interview data, it's either lacking or they don't have it, mm-hmm. right? Or they have a check the box, left for a better opportunity, you know, left to go back to school, right? And so that's how you can dig into us. So let's just take that system, right? Let's just take that from an HR perspective. So one way to, to get into that system is to say, okay, we're now going to make sure that our data, you know, we, lo- we say we love data. We, we're going to make sure that our data is complete and we're going to ask those kinds of questions so that we understand why we have um, that kind of, you know, that kind of turnover. Um, so that's, that's one way I think to get at, um, to get at systems. I think when we think about racism, we often think about it as being interpersonal. You know, race, racism is somebody who says, you know, something bad. They say the N-word or they, or whatever. But we have to recognize that there are four levels of racism. You know, right. there's the, uh, the interpersonal, person to person. There's the intrapersonal. So Black people, we internalize racism. We sometimes start to believe what some of those stereotypes are. And then there's institutional racism that happens, you know, at, the, at a company level. And then there's the structural racism. Structural racism, you know, is really deeply embedded. And that can be, uh, that, an example of that would be um, voter suppression. So mm-hmm. voter suppression has been going on uh, ever since um, Black people were given the vote with the 15th Amendment. And then there was, um, there was a, a law that said, you know, you, you can't do that in the 1800s, uh, 1870, 1880. In 1965, there was another voters, voter right, voting rights act. And then in 2020, um, the late John Lewis, um, well, he introduced it before 2020, but it's still in Congress to be passed a voter rights act, giving black people the right to vote. Why, you know, so that's a system that has been broken since 1860, what, you know, whatever that, that year is. And so what are we doing? And we are fighting that, right? God bless Stacey Abrams and all that she's doing and others. However, why should we have to do that if, in fact, we say we are about and liberty and justice for all? 
Hmm. Um, and the excuses that are being made around that. So that's an example of a, of a system um, that we need to break. But you know how we break those systems? We break them with power brokers, those who, who are in the power to be able to do that because there are people who can do that. Um, so as an example, when um, after George Floyd and everybody started to sell, organizations started to say, well, we're gonna be um, anti-racist. You know, we started to see things like um, police departments saying that we're gonna ban chokehold. We started seeing organizations say, we're going to have Juneteenth as a holiday, not, not that that's gonna change any system, but, but the point is, is that there are people in power who can make decisions to change things. That's what we need to happen to get at the systems. I love that. I love that. I probably have time for like maybe one more question. So, you know, this past year was just um, it, it was it was so different in so many ways. Uh, and the fight for social justice uh, it continues. Um, there was a lot of real change that was shown this past year, which, you know, I think um, we're all hopeful and optimistic about. But we've still got a long way to go. So what advice do you have for staying hopeful and keeping up the fight? How can we avoid giving up as part of the fatigue? So I think that we have to, um, again, be around, you know, people who will be supportive, like minded people who will keep us um, who will keep us pumped up. We do need to take breaks. We do need to rest. Uh, we do need to, there's something called the nap ministry. You know, there's stereotypes though. For our people, there are stereotypes about if you're not working, right, then you're lazy. And so some of us just keep going, keep going. And there's so much to be done. And that burden oftentimes falls on us. So, you know, the activists of today are saying very loudly um, that it's not our job, you know, to teach white people what it's like to be in our skin and, and uh, what it's like to endure um, racism. And so I think keeping that hope really means, you know, not taking on that responsibility, doing what you can, when you can, and how you feel like doing it, not that you're feeling, you know, forced to do it. And I think rest to, to restore ourselves is so very, is so very important. Um, so hearing and listening to um, motivational kinds of um, messages, music, you know, whatever it is that, that, that keeps us, you know, that keeps hope alive, you know, if, if you will, I think that we have to do that. It is not easy though, Lola, it's not. It, it, it really isn't easy. And, I, and I'm hoping that from, um, you know, from this um, webinar and, and others, that people are getting, getting fed, that it's okay to stop. It's okay to say, I've had enough. It's okay to say, I need a minute. And, and for leaders, you know, it may, your black indigenous people of color may, may, need to, may need to step out of a meeting, may need to lead. And I think that flexibility and that understanding that these are really, really difficult times um, and again, seeing the images over and over again of people who look like you who are being murdered, it really does take its toll. And if we are going to foster you know, mental well-being, mental health, we need to think about what are those little things day to day that we can do to do that so that we can keep hope alive. Absolutely. This has been so impactful for me and I hope many others are tuned in and listening to this. This has been just so powerful in so many ways. So I've certainly taken a lot out of it. So I just want to thank you so much. Thank you so much for pouring into us um, today and for being here with us. I've learned so much from you and um, 
Yeah, I just I love that positive note that we that we ended on and just, you know, really staying hopeful and optimistic and just really being able to take time for yourself and rest. Take a step back when you need to. It's so important to take care of ourselves. So thank you so much, Mary Frances, for being with us today. Really, really appreciate you. Thank you. And to everyone that's listening, remember to be happy, be healthy and be well. Thank you, everyone. And goodbye. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please be sure to leave a rating and review. We also encourage you to share this podcast with friends, family, and anyone you think could use a boost of inspiration. For more Be Well Together goodness, visit salesforce.com plus or click the link in our show notes. Check back here again next week for our episode on creating meaningful connections with behavioral scientist, John Levy.